Welcome to the Daily Theology Podcast, episode number 13. I am your host, Stephen Oki. Today's episode features my conversation with Tommy Humphreys of St. Leo University. When I joined St. Leo a couple of years back, Tommy became one of my closest friends pretty quickly. We would work out together, we'd go to prayer together, we'd have lunch together. And so when time came to start the podcast, he was one of the first guys I talked to, and this was actually one of the first conversations I ever recorded for the show. Tommy's a pretty interesting dude. He has a background in carpentry. He has a degree in forestry. He's a volunteer firefighter. And in this conversation, we talk about that background. We talk about the way the breviary and the doctors of the church have shaped his spirituality. And we talk about the dangers of Gnosticism for academic theologians. As always, you can let us know what you think in the comments on the blog or on iTunes. And thank you so much for listening. So with us today is Dr. Tommy Humphreys of the St. Leo uh, Philosophy, Theology, and Religious Studies Department. Hello. Tommy, thanks for being here. It's good to have you. I am excited. So to start off with, you know, the first real question I have is, you now, you're, you're a theologian in the department. Uh, how did you come to be a theologian? What were kind of the experiences or steps or, or whatnot that led you to, to, to this career? It, it was a pretty windy path, to be honest. Uh, in fact, this is probably the second farthest career path away from what I had originally envisioned for myself when I was like 18 or so. Really? Uh, I, I did not want an office job. Uh, I wanted to be outside all the time. Mm-hmm. I didn't mind working with people, but I certainly didn't want the kind of job where all I did was just be with people around them, you know, <laughs> stuck in all the politics and all these kinds of things. Uh, so I think about the only job worse for me, given that original career trajectory, would have been something like a banker uh, with, with you know, <laughs> nine to five hours. Now I have, uh, I mean, what most people to be imagine. And, what most people imagine to be the the essential office job, mm-hmm. a college professor. My my original thought was to be a forester. Oh yeah. So I went to school. I chose school based on forestry programs, and while I was there, I found out that I really enjoyed philosophy. Mm-hmm. And my philosophy professors recognized that in me, encouraged me to take more classes. But if I had to guess, it would be actually the relationships that I had with those teachers that kept me coming back to realize about myself that I appreciated the questions Mm -hmm. and, and the way that the questions are answered in a discipline like philosophy. So I finished both forestry and philosophy and still thought that I might be a forester, either a backcountry park ranger, uh, an outdoor education kind of guy, you know, Knowles or Outward Bound. Were you, were you picturing yourself reading works of philosophy up in trees? Or By the time I graduated, yes, that I would grab <laughs> books. So I had, I'd actually started to get interested in some of these, you know, semester at sea or mm-hmm. uh, backpacking trips and thought that maybe I could lead some of that. At the same time that I had been discovering in myself a real love for asking these questions, answering them with other people and, and reflecting deeply on them, I was also invited to participate in parish ministry, mm. a very small youth group. I mean, we, we never had more than two dozen teenagers in a rural countryside parish about 20 miles from my undergraduate campus. Every Saturday since October of my freshman year, I went down to the parish to participate in mm. their youth ministry group. So I'd go to Mass Saturday evening and, and spend several hours with the teens and a family down there. Uh, and then I'd come back up to campus and have you know the Sunday college experience also Sunday evening. 
And I liked that as well. So when I graduated, I simply asked the parish if I could go full time because mm-hmm. that's what made the most sense to me. And I really felt like that's what I should do for the next year, not maybe not for my whole life, but it was kind of like a figure for the next out year. year. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and so I turned down offers to go to grad school in uh, forestry. Mm-hmm. I turned down offers to take forestry jobs. I like, had them and said, no, I, I'm yeah. going to be a youth minister. Uh, at this small parish, that's going to be fun. I was a volunteer firefighter that year for the first time, and just I enjoyed it. At the end of the year, it was time for me to move on. Mm-hmm. And I had applied for grad schools in theology on the premise that if I was going to be a professional parish minister, a lay minister, mm-hmm. I would need advanced training in theology, which I, I did not have. I hadn't really even taken undergraduate religion or theology. Was that a requirement at your undergrad? There, there were requirements in a distribution model. You must take a philosophy or a religion, okay. and I took the philosophy. Okay. Uh, actually, I, like I took a humanity sequence that kind of mm-hmm. wiped out intro to English, intro to history, intro to religion gotcha. or philosophy. Okay. So I graduated college with zero credits in religion or theology (laughs) and then thought this is what I want to do at least for another five years or something. I enjoy it. I'm good at it. Mm -hmm. You know, I felt some sense of fulfillment. So why not prepare myself to do it? And all of my professors had said, you're going to grad school. It's Mm -hmm. just a question of when, right? So I applied for theology programs thinking I would do a master's and then go to full-time parish work and maybe if I were really good at it, diocesan work Mm -hmm. uh, to kind of help other people in in ministry and I I left uh, I left one ministry job for another ministry job and then left that ministry job to teach in high school at a boarding high school Catholic high school and in those transitions I realized about myself that my ministry field is the classroom much more than it's the parish sure absolutely love volunteering in in parishes but I thought a lot about what I had to offer not just my skill sets but my way of being and and, Mm -hmm. and my way of teaching and relating to other people. And I realized while it was fun and in many ways an exciting fit in the parish, it was a much more sustainable, fulfilling fit in a classroom. Was there like a a moment or an event or something that like triggered that realization for you? Or was it a kind of steady, progressive sense or? Like, uh, like most things in my life, it was getting angry and, uh, And then God basically saying, fine, you know, you think you can do better, do it this way. It, it, that was even how I got into ministry in the first place. I'd, I'd come off of being very frustrated with, with some of the high school youth ministers that mm-hmm. I had encountered in my senior year and just, you know, left thinking, surely there's more to it than this. And, and within a couple of weeks of being on campus, here's a pair saying, why don't you do it? You know, mm-hmm. I, I took that as God calling my bluff. Uh, <laughs> Similarly, at these other parishes, I would keep thinking, you know, God, it's got to be better than this. There's got to mm-hmm. be more to it than that. And, you know, to some extent, I was right. There, there are always problems in a parish. And to another extent, I was coming to terms with my own limits mm-hmm. and where I fit best. So by the time I went to grad school, it was clear to me that I wanted to be a professor. Mm-hmm. I, wanted, I wanted to go all the way in, do a Ph.D., and teach full-time as a career. Mm-hmm. And I, I understood that as a ministry from having done ministry before. It was not clear to me exactly which end of theology I wanted to study or you know, whether I wanted to be a super academic writing books or just wanted to do the study and then spend the rest of my life teaching what I had mm-hmm. learned intently over, over a couple of years. But I, I never envisioned that this would be my job mm-hmm. uh, or my career. 
when when all of this kind of opened up or, or started. Would the would the language of vocation be like the kind of language that you use to describe how you've come to this now? Yeah, you know, uh, kind of coyly sometimes when people ask me a question like that. Well, how did you how did you get to be a theologian or why? I, li- I like to say, well, I hope God had something to do with it. Uh, <laughs> there are points at which I'm I'm painfully aware that was not my doing Mm -hmm. Uh, a job just opened up someone asked can you fill a need you Mm -hmm. know and and okay i can do it maybe for for a couple of months or a year or i'll try it out but it was never uh, it was never the kind of thing where i had all this lined up and if i take job a that's a stepping stone for b and Mm -hmm. c and d and that will eventually lead here so in in that sense you know of looking back on your life thinking God has pulled me through all of this, it's it's definitely a vocation. If I were to go the other way, though, and try to say, you know, imagine imagine the three-year-old Tommy or, or the, the kid in sixth grade, was God preparing me to be a college professor? There are a number of moments when I look back on my life and I think, oh, hindsight's twenty twenty. It makes mm-hmm. sense now, right? I was singled out, I remember, by the associate pastor at my parochial school, who, who pulled me aside. I'd gotten into trouble. I was kind of vehemently, passionately defending a position here or there, and, and students were gathering behind me and uniting against this, you know, there, there's this, this stuff. <laughs> You're rabble-rousing. Yeah, I was rabble-rousing, and that was me. And, uh, and the associate pastor pretty insightfully pulled me aside, took me over to the rectory. He thought that I was going to be a priest. So far, he's wrong. But yeah. uh, he said, you know, when you, when you talk, people listen. Uh, you have to you have to think about what you're going to say before you say it because you can't mm-hmm. you can't go off kind of half cocked like this. But I was in trouble, you know. Mm-hmm. I thought I was going to get a pink slip in detention for the first time, <laughs> and uh, and instead he did that kind of marvelous turn that Catholics really can make, and, mm-hmm. and that is there's a profound gift here which has been slightly perverted. Mm-hmm. Let me help you uncover that gift mm-hmm. to to discover what it is that lies at the bottom of this, and you know a lot of being a professor is rabble rousing it's yeah. it's it's getting people energized erged up about about some idea or some event yeah. and helping them to think about it in a new way I mean, especially in theology we have a lot of students who kind of come in and you know they think they already kind of know the bible or they already know or they did ccd so they have some background or anything and then uh the the opportunity to sort of you know show them you know in a more serious and critical way like well have you really read these parts of the bible have you really thought about these kinds of things the that's the way to kind of jack them and like get them to to wrestle with it. Yeah, if you can raise your sixth grade class into a kind of you know <laughs> fury, then maybe you'll make it as a good teacher of college freshmen. <laughs> it's a good good standard. <laughs> uh, another sense of vocation, you know, again, not one that I saw as it was playing out, and probably one that I don't see clearly now as mm-hmm. it's playing out, but but that is clear to me at this point is the sense in which. Uh, I have been called through the action of the church, called through the sacraments, mm-hmm. giving gifts in baptism and confirmation and Eucharist and in ways that I didn't realize then, like mm-hmm. I say, but now become clear to me that a lot of what I do is living out those graces or living out those sacraments or living out that liturgy. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, I think of what I do not so much as a career but definitely as a vocation, as, mm-hmm. as truly a calling from God about how I can be the best me, the most fulfilled me, mm-hmm. uh, and and truly enjoy what it is that God has given me to enjoy. So you, I mean, you would even use the language of, of like of describing your 
career and livelihood at, as a teacher as sacramental. Yes. Because that's a way that you think about it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which sometimes gets me into trouble because, you know, you're not supposed to be paid to perform sacraments, uh, right? Uh, liturgy is not a show and, and no money is supposed to, to you take You a contract hands. for simony. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Uh, so I, I do have to be careful about that sometimes and, and definitely to think there are aspects of what I do that are a job for mm-hmm. sure. And, the and committee meetings, the, yeah. Plenty of those things which shouldn't be recorded on, uh, on tape that I would rather not do. Uh, but in the end... You know, some of those things are things we, we just have to do. That's just mm. part of, of how these things play out. Also, in as much as I participate in my vocation fully, wholeheartedly, that, that I think God asks us to participate in our own vocations, mm-hmm. to be co-creators in, in that sense, uh, there's also another sense in which I'm not the one doing the calling. Mm. And so I, I can't make the mistake of thinking that everything that would be related to my calling would be easy or mm-hmm. fun. And perhaps there are some things that... that I'm asked to do, even by virtue of my baptism, that are much more like suffering than like standing up in front of people and talking and having mm-hmm. fun. Sure, sure. So you, you had mentioned that you know, some of your undergraduate professors had noticed a real curiosity and, and talent uh, for you. And so, um, I mean, among that group or the, the people that you worked with as a grad student, as a PhD student, who would you say were really central mentors for you in this sort of long process becoming a theologian? I was quite fortunate in grad school at the Catholic University of America to have a number of classmates who were all like-minded, and they mm-hmm. wanted to be prayerful about their theology. And I think that might be the, the kind of single most formative point for me in, mm-hmm. in the long process, the academic formation at least, that is to say to have the classmates for two years who also understood going to graduate school, getting academic credentials that involve loans and living in weird places mm-hmm. and you know all, all the compromises you have to make in life to make <laughs> grad school in D.C. work. Uh, all of them understood all of that as part of their vocation as well. Mm-hmm. That, that's probably the single most helpful thing for me in, in thinking of it in those terms. But there are definitely figures that stood out. I had a priest, Father Galvin, also at CUA, who was a, a amazing teacher, a wonderful man, a great great guy, you know, in all the respects. But I remember sitting in class as a first semester graduate student, uh, and again, this is the first time I'd had a class called theology or religion mm-hmm. officially, right? Because I didn't have that in undergrad. And I remember watching him answer questions that my classmates were were asking. And I would think to myself, that's a stupid question. Why, you know, why did you say that? You you shouldn't have opened your mouth. Uh, and he would answer in such a marvelous way that it was obvious to me he was teaching from his wisdom. Mm-hmm. It, it was a real application of virtue, mm-hmm. and it was not simply answering questions with, with a better understanding than the student had. Mm-hmm. It, that was a, a real turning point for me in thinking about what teaching is. Teaching is sharing that wisdom, is living that virtue with your students. It definitely involves being smart, Having to study, you know, I'm not saying that you don't know answers. Mm-hmm. I'm saying that knowing answers is not all there is to teaching. And that that really struck me profoundly, mm-hmm. that maybe the goal of this is to be wise. I'm not sure when, but related to that, I made the connection to the commons in the breviary. Mm-hmm. You know, when we have a, a saint's feast day, 
the breveries organized it's super condensed and so they'll take anything that you would say more than once and put it in a kind of appendix mm -hmm. and then they'll give that a title right so we have the things that we say for pastors and we have the things that we say for holy men and women and we have the things we say for virgins and for martyrs and for apostles and sure. for dedications of church uh, and we have the things that we say for doctors of the church uh, and for at least a dozen years now I have put that Father Galvin experience along with the long experience of praying the breviary and thought, maybe I am supposed to find myself in the common of doctors. Mm. That this life that I have chosen to which God has called me is the life of sharing wisdom freely with others. Mm -hmm. How do you feel that you do that with uh, your undergraduates here at St. Leo or the, the master's students you work with here at St. Leo insofar as you feel like you're fulfilling that calling I mean, what are the things that you do that help you do that? What are the, you know, like, how do you, how, I mean, how do you spend your day kind of preparing to do that kind of thing? You know, like the the day-to-day, -day, like, life of a theologian. What's that like for you? Yeah, uh, definitely. What, 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 what do the doctors of the church look like, <laughs> you know, from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. or <laughs> it, it follows different patterns. I mean, one of the glories of being a professor is the summer is a very different time from mm -hmm. from school being in session but even when school's in session we've got a lot of freedom to, mm -hmm. to kind of come and go there are some hard points that i've put in that that help me stay balanced as an individual and remind me that you know i'm, I'm trying to find a life again that should show up in the breviary and not not necessarily at a university press things like a regular routine of prayer mm -hmm. so the liturgy of the hours and eucharistic liturgies are important points and I kind of just have to remain faithful to that. Mm -hmm. Whether it feels good or doesn't feel good, uh, I have to commit that to, to my own life. I even write it into my office schedule often hmm. uh, so that it shows up in my Outlook calendar. I get reminders for it that other people won't schedule meetings for it. You know, mm -hmm. I, I set aside time for prayer, especially liturgical prayer, with the community here. Uh, my wife and I also pray morning prayer in the mornings. And again, we're fortunate to have leisurely mornings, so it's not a stressed or, or cramped time for us. Sure. It's kind of a beautiful, relaxing way to, to get going. But the routine there serves a purpose, as well as well, you have to talk to God and listen to God and, and be with God mm -hmm. if you want to be a theologian, mm -hmm. one who talks to, with, and, and sure, sure. about or for God. There's uh, a delicate balance between you know, needing to continue to study, needing to learn things that I haven't learned before, mm -hmm. and being prepared to teach the things that I've chosen ahead of time uh, for the students or for class. Mm -hmm. So when I have a new syllabus, when I'm not teaching that syllabus, I, I look through my old syllabi, I try to recollect my experiences of learning about that, uh, I try to pray through that material, think about which texts were most moving for me, what, what kinds of experiences came from reading these texts, and put those together in a way that makes sense, in a way that I can teach. Uh, sometimes I read that well beforehand, you know, the summer before, because I know I'm going to be busy with emails and meetings and all yeah. those other things that happen. You're way ahead of the game um, <laughs> Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes. You know, other times I'll, I'll put something in that I haven't read in a long time or that I need to reread, or, or maybe that I just know about but mm -hmm. don't know all the details of and so I'll, I'll read it for the first time or with with fresh eyes as the semester unfolds one thing i need to do more of but that that is important as you're asking how do you how do you keep this kind of balance is to add back into the routine things that i've not read before mm -hmm. to learn new things 
in a lot of ways right now, conversations with other theologians, other professors mm-hmm. uh, is kind of what helps me learn about new things or think about new things. Sometimes I'll read news articles on church things and that can help jog my memory. Um, but I, I do think that we have to continue to learn, mm-hmm. continue to study in all the same ways that we were studying and developing in grad school because you know, I'm not fully developed. The, the doctorate doesn't say you're done learning now. Sure. All you have to do is spew wisdom yeah. uh, and it says you, you have to continue to receive it's a starting it. block. Yeah. So the liturgical patterns, the, the patterns at home, again, mm-hmm. praying with my wife and the study. I do find that teaching, especially teaching this discipline, often creates the right kind of intimate space to have deep and meaningful conversations with students. Mm. And that keeps me going as well. So I'm often asked to teach spirituality. And I hadn't really planned on teaching spirituality when I finished my course of study, but I see why it fits naturally. And I enjoy it now. Uh Sincerely enjoy it now. Because, again, it's always that challenge from God. Well, you know, you think this is how it should be done? Or or Mm -hmm. you're going to go say, these are the patterns for a balanced life. Look Mm -hmm. at what these great saints and doctors of the church see and give quizzes to your students about whether they understand it all. Mm -hmm. That's a constant reminder to me to live it also and Mm -hmm. and to explore it more deeply. So I I see even the relationships I develop with students who may be at different places in kind of the developmental patterns as still holding me accountable, challenging me and helping me to grow as well. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was a doctoral student, I had a professor who taught us, I taught a class on, asceticism in early Christianity and one of the striking suggestions he made at the beginning of the semester was you know each week we're reading someone different and they're describing ways of living and practices and disciplines and everything and he said just for that week do whatever they're saying to do yeah just li- live their style and if it's you know fasting before 10 a.m then just do that for that week and you know beyond the arguments that they're making and everything just live the practice of what they're doing and see if that you know affects your thinking at all or affects your interpretation of them i remember being very struck by that suggestion i don't know how well i lived up to it but the idea of it has just remained with me as a way of in teaching spirituality and that kind of thing like reconciling those th- that those ways of living you found it difficult to eat one chickpea for a week with the Desert Fathers? That was not my strength, no. <laughs> I have a deep hunger for food. Uh, so uh, so do, you, do you feel, I mean, at this point, I know you're you know, early in your career and, and all that, but has work-life balance been something that you feel like you've been able to more or less maintain or sustain? Or So that's something that just personally you know my my constitution requires me to reevaluate about every 15 minutes uh, and and I never have a clear answer even for myself uh, I do have to stop and remind myself that I'm living a wonderful life mm-hmm. and there's lots of balance in it um, but there're probably more balance points and other changes and things to come in family life or, yeah. or professional life for sure I do think that uh, for the most part, the, the life that we get to lead as professors, particularly professors of theology, is is mostly balance. Mm-hmm. It certainly encourages the right kinds of balance. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also helps a lot that we are at a school founded by a Benedictine monastery sure. because we can kind of rely on their orarium, their, their way of going through the day mm-hmm. to help us out. And, I mean, I know you go and pray with me often with the monks. Sure. 
that community helps maintain the, the right kind of balance for me. It may be a different balance for other people, but, but for me, that seems to yeah. work fairly well. Do you, within that, I know the, I mean, the work you did in your PhD is primarily patristic theology, and that has continued to be at least the bulk of the research that you've focused on. How do you find some balance between, you mentioned before you weren't sure at one point whether you wanted to, you know, really be a research scholar or be a teaching scholar, and I mean, we're a teaching university, and so I know that's been your focus here. Uh, Do you get to do the research that you want to do? Does it uh, contribute to your teaching? Does your teaching contribute back? Is there... I mean, how, how is that working for you in, insofar as it may be? There, there are sort of two answers. Well, one is no, I don't get to do the research uh, that mm-hmm. I want to do because there are some things I think, oh, I wish I knew that or I wish yeah. I had read that. On the other hand, uh, there's plenty of time in my day where if I wanted to skip a workout or mm-hmm. you know, not to have a long lunch, I could go back and read something else. Yeah. I, I'm not, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so – Part of that is me, and part of that is you need your own recreation time. Mm-hmm. And most of my work time is definitely taken up with a four-four teaching load, and then extra work that, that we're asked to do on top of that, yeah. including in the summer. Um, perhaps that's not ideal. Uh, perhaps that gets easier once I've taught everything once or twice before, and preparation is not as intense or, or doesn't take up as much time. I still don't know about myself either whether I would want to write more books mm-hmm. or fewer books. Uh, and I'm not sure that I need to know. Like, a, yeah. you know, this this is the right place for now. This is working out. Why look at this and try to find all the problems with it or something like that might be might be one strategy for, mm-hmm. for asking about these things. On the other hand, it, it does occur to me that there's uh, a better relationship between teaching and research than I've been able to find so far. A lot of what we teach in college, and I think this is true for every professor, a lot of what we teach is essentially introduction to our field, broad yeah. range of things. And it's fun. It's exciting. Uh, you get to go back and look at things you haven't really thought about sure. in, in 10 years and say, oh, I get it. That, that's why this fits together. That's why this is an interesting puzzle for yeah. my classmates. And it makes a lot more sense now, yeah. now that I have to teach yeah. it. It sure does. There's no doubt about that. Um, but – uh, you know, will the days come when I get to actually teach my research mm-hmm. or will the days come when I'm just taking the little corners off of my research and filling them in where it's kind of appropriate? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Uh, it it does occur to me that the vast majority of professors are doing the same thing I'm doing, mm-hmm. that the world, the academic world is by no means full of guys who really only read Latin texts and every now and then refer to Greek counterparts, mm-hmm. and that's all they talk about all day. That's how it went for me for a couple of years at Emory doing yeah. PhD work, uh, but that's not normal, right? That, that's no. not what the academy needs in general. <laughs> um, so, you know, maybe I shouldn't try to define my experience as a professor in terms of my experience as a grad student. Yeah, or or even by a sort of projected or even romanticized view of what it used to be like. Yeah. I mean, by and large, that's not the student body that we're working with, either at this university or, or generally. Yeah. And that is, I mean, I mean, especially schools like, like St. Leo, but many others, you know, what they want, they want, other schools certainly want more publishing than maybe here, but um, I, know, I know that we're primarily sort of a service department in the sense of fulfilling, you know, general education, liberal education kind of requirements. Uh, and so they're not looking for uh, highly specialized classes in patristic uh, pneumatology right. or, or whatnot. 
what what would you what was it that drew you to patristics when you were doing graduate work? I mean, I know you had the philosophy background. Was it through that? I mean, I'm assuming it wasn't through forestry. So, I, <laughs> I, <laughs> the ancient wisdom of the trees. Yeah. So when I got to Calic U, I was doing a master's in systematic theology. And uh, a number of the classes that I took that interested me the most were reading uh, Rahner, von Balthasar, and de Lubach. Mm. Uh, and I'm, I'm not saying whether I agreed or disagreed with those sure. guys. I thought the questions they were asking were just really great questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I kept thinking, well, I want to answer these questions. I want, I'm going to participate in this dialogue. And I realized a lot of what we were doing in class was learning Augustine, learning Thomas, learning Basil, so that we could understand why Rahner and de Lubach mm-hmm. were in this debate about how best to describe human nature and mm-hmm. who knows what else you have to learn to understand von Balthasar, but it at least looks like something you should learn. Yeah. Right? I mean, they're um, really the figures that are you know going back to patristic thought at the time. Well, that that's the, that's kind of the, the kernel yeah. that, that drove me to patristic. Huh. Well, if I ever want to be taken seriously as a theologian in the way that the greats of my early master's experience as Rahner, von Balthasar, mm-hmm. de Lubach are, then what I need to do is not study Rahner, de Lubach, and von Balthasar. I need to study what they studied, right? If I if mm-hmm. I want to contribute to their discussions, then I need to be able to discuss these other things at the same level they are. Mm-hmm. And that, that was the initial observation that made it pretty clear that patristics was where I should specialize for doctoral work. Mm. So kind of on a, on a different trajectory, I'm thinking back to some of what you said about teaching and, and all of that. What would you say maybe challenges you the most in living your vocation or, or challenges that you sort of anticipate facing either as an academic or as, you know, a, a church going, you know, uh, person or uh, maybe sort of the larger issues the church faces or. So on one hand, the, the challenges will always be sin and my, mm-hmm. my personal involvement with it, right? Your massive ego. <laughs> my, my. Huge ego, my pride, my lust. I mean, all, all the things that you get to read about in the Bible and see mm-hmm. on HBO in vivid detail. That's, uh, yeah, those are, those are always the problems. Are there, are there, I mean, do you see, I mean, like, so one common, I guess, critique of academics is the sins of, like, pride and elitism sure. and, and things like that. Is that something that particularly concerns you or is a, is a temptation that you yourself feel? Or? yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I'm sure I'm prideful in the ways that everyone else is prideful. I'm, I'm not mm-hmm. denying that. The sins that seem to grip me the most or the demons that tempt me the most, at least at this point, don't seem to be academic pride. Mm-hmm. But maybe what's related to it is is a kind of pervasive sense of Gnosticism. Mm-hmm. I know something that you don't know. Yeah. And therefore I'm better at mm-hmm. being Catholic than you are. Yeah. Uh, and I remember, uh, I remember once talking to an, a very old Jesuit priest trying to come to terms with, with you know, this vision that was stuck in my head. So my father's a carpenter, mm-hmm. uh, went to one class in college, got pissed at the professor, told him off, never went back again. <laughs> right? And by his own account, he was a C slash D student at, in high school. Uh, my dad, uh, my dad made fun of me for going to school to learn forestry. Mm-hmm. Uh, like that. This is just not what Humphreys did. Uh, my mom has an associate's degree in nursing. Mm. And that, that's as far as anyone in our family had gotten. Mm. Uh, 
uh, a couple of other people, uh, aunts and uncles, had had uh, bachelor's degrees at, at various kinds of institutions. So I grew up as a carpenter and worked as a journeyman carpenter. I still do sometimes, mm-hmm. which meant I focused a lot on what you can do with your hands, uh, what what tools can do, and especially your hands as tools. But then I get to college and I realize like your mind is this marvelous tool and there's mm-hmm. there's a whole other dimensions to the way the world works that, that frankly I just hadn't quite realized. Some of that's just developmental, right? You, sure. you don't gain the capacity for that thought till you're older, some of its family experience. So there I am in the throes of all of this. Uh, I go to mass. I think it was a Saturday afternoon, like anticipated vigil. The sun is setting, the lights coming through the the windows. And there's an older man kneeling down in front of me before mass, you know, saying his prayers and he's kneeling with his hands folded. And I look at his hands and I think I recognize those hands. Those are, those are workmen's hands. Those Mm -hmm. are carpenter's hands. They're, they're rough. They're strong. Those are hands that can get something done. Mm -hmm. And they're kneeling here praying. And and here I am. And well, some of my calluses have worn off because I'm a pretty little college boy now, you know, and and, uh, (laughs) I'm, kind of looking at my hands and I'm thinking, uh, well, this guy, he doesn't know what we're about to do. Mm -hmm. He doesn't understand. And, you know, I'm thinking to myself of all of these things that I've read about the Eucharist and, and, and God. And so I'm deeply troubled that this 55 year old man who's kind of given his life in service as far as I know is not going to have as deep or as true or as genuine an experience of, of God mm-hmm. and the church and, and mass as I'm about to have. Mm. It haunts me through mass. I mean, I keep looking at the guy praying, wondering what the difference between, between us is. And, uh, and so there I am sometime later chatting with this old Jesuit priest. I tell him this story. I said, Father, I, I just don't know how to get around this. Like, like, what is this? Am I, am I just better? Is he just worse? Is there whatever? And he kind of laughed and, uh, he said, essentially, it's, it's not a scale of better or worse. It's a scale of different. Mm-hmm. And there are aspects of the mystery of God that he gets that you don't, that, that you don't even know exist, mm-hmm. right? That's just a difference in humanity. Your way is different. Yeah. And I, I'm okay with that. It makes a lot of sense to me. It brings great joy to me. But that's that's one of the deepest dangers for me, that I'll be grandstanding in front of my students that when I go to pray with them at, at Mass on campus, I'll think I'm better than you. Or, as happens often, uh, well, now academically, I outrank every priest that I'm going to encounter. Mm-hmm. I am smarter, more well-read than any of these guys, and they're wrong, and sometimes they're preaching it, you mm-hmm. know? And and there's this real danger of me walking <laughs> around thinking I am the sole defender, guardian of the truth. Yeah. Turning off during homilies more. Yeah. 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 And it's a and, temptation I have. Yeah. <laughs> so and that may be some kind of pride, pride about my self knowledge sure. or, or sure. my own ability, but I see it as this Gnostic turn that, yeah. that's the real danger for, for academics that we would think we have the secret knowledge that's really going to save people or that we have a higher spot in heaven mm-hmm. because we spent five years reading old books in Latin. Uh, and and someone else is just not as good at it yeah. as we are. It's interesting the way that you put that because as as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, for for every theologian I can think of who has had that kind of sense, potential sense of spiritual superiority due to academic superiority, which I know I can I can think of several periods of my life where that was really dominant, um, or even where you know, 
academic and intellectual work supplanted, you know, living a spiritual life, prayer, uh, that kind of thing. I can also think of as many who, you know, the sort of the intellectual pursuit has become a kind of uh, an enemy to the spiritual pursuit in the sense of, you know, how can I believe these things when I know these things? Mm-hmm. And how can I reconcile the, these issues? Which in a way, it, it seems like oftentimes the fear of a lot of my students. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, they start, you know, they start hearing about historical critical method and like, but, but, but what really happened? It's like, well, you know, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a good question there. Yeah. Uh, it may not be what you expect in certain situations. Yeah, that's a really interesting insight. I'm fortunate to have experiences, I think, that that even helped me answer those sets of questions for myself before I realized how gripping a -hmm. set of questions they were. Back when I was doing ministry just after college, I remember I was walking back from the rectory visiting with the priest, and the rectory was about a block away from the church, the parish office, so there was a good little walk, you know, Mm -hmm. to kind of walk across this field and and get back to my office. And... honestly don't remember what I was thinking about or praying about or, or, or if I was, I might've just been <laughs> reviewing something else in my head. But all of a sudden I just had this realization uh, that love and truth were the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I guess it completely shattered my notion of what I had been doing in college. And mm-hmm. what I had been doing in college was pursuing truth. And that's mm-hmm. what a philosopher does. And, and I know it. And the difficult thing is to talk someone who knows the truth well into also being a good lover. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it was as if, or perhaps it really was, God showing himself to me mm. that there is no difference between these. The, mm-hmm. the God of love is the God of truth. That's stuck with me deeply, and, and it has made sense over and over and over again. Mm. When I come to discover some new truth or some new expression of doctrine, uh, a puzzle over how we can make sense of God in, in his own self or God in our lives, it has always shown to me as something that's beautiful and loving mm-hmm. as well as something that's true. So frankly, I've never, I've never really been confronted with some kind of truth that wasn't also beautiful. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there's probably a lot of those little truths that I'm overlooking that just don't matter to me. Yeah. They don't carry the weight. They, they don't. Yeah. I remember grappling deeply with John of the Cross and John Paul II on John of the Cross one summer I was traveling and picked up this book I thought I'd read it I didn't know what it was about it was in a language I didn't really speak all that well so I was kind of you know (laughs) getting partial bits of it Uh, but that actually made the point all the more effective John Paul II has this text on faith in Mm -hmm. John of the Cross and that at some point faith is love Mm -hmm. in that it's a choice Mm-hmm. And the more naked the choice, the more faith becomes love. Mm-hmm. Uh, the more it moves from uh, some kind of fake opinion or stand-in for knowledge, and the more it becomes, I choose, I choose to give myself to you. I choose good for you. Uh, I choose love. Mm-hmm. I choose union in this situation. And a lot of times, uh, I, I get to a point and I think, Wow, I don't know if I can make any more sense of this. Mm-hmm. And, and Peter's words to Jesus come back, Lord, to whom shall we go? Mm-hmm. We've come to believe that you are the Lord, the Messiah, the Son of God. You know, this is where I cast my lot. Mm-hmm. There's nowhere else for me to work out this problem. And in that sense, I'm not gripped by the, how do I make sense of this? How do I explain this to everybody else? Sure. You know, uh, I'm more gripped by, 
how am I going to get through this problem? How, mm-hmm. how does this tradition already help me or how is this the way through as opposed to is this the right way? And that, it seems like that would help also express uh, from earlier on your, your sense of vocation. The, the idea of, of, of it's something that you were called to that's not entirely your doing. And in that sense, there's this element of faith in it, but it is also your choice, your work, your effort. I mean, you've put in a lot of work. Uh, it's not, <laughs> you aren't lazy about it or haven't been lazy about it. So, yeah, that's a helpful insight. As kind of a, a, a closing question before I have a little questionnaire, what kind of advice would you offer for, you know, graduate students in the theology or, you know, fellow early career junior scholar theologians as they sort of, you know, embark on this similar career? Yeah. I think one of the great puzzles in discernment, especially in discerning a vocation, is, is figuring out what gifts you have, what you can give, and what other people can receive. Mm-hmm. Once you get that clear, the rest of it all falls into line, right? Mm-hmm. If, if what you have to offer is some sense of genuine teaching, if that's, if that's where you give yourself most truly, then that's where your vocation lies. That's where you will pick up your cross and follow after Christ. That's mm-hmm. where you will empty yourself. For us, it's to empty ourselves day after day, taking up, uh, the same questions and trying to pose them in forms that are intelligible to our students mm-hmm. and that can move them along a little farther in asking a question. It's being a, a, a mindful presence that you can be smart and be Christian uh, and, and maybe even be heroes who are both intelligent and loving, who mm-hmm. don't, don't see all these things as split and fractured into different parts. But you have to find what's been given to you and you have to find what you're willing to give, mm. then you can find who is willing to receive it. Mm-hmm. Like I say, for me, what I was trying to give uh, was not best received in a parish youth ministry program. It's best received at a, at a college campus. Mm-hmm. Um, after that realization's made, most of the rest of it falls into line. So grad school is a time of facing your limits in lots of ways. I mean, your, <laughs> your limits... Uh, including financial limits. That's right. <laughs> your, your financial limits, your, your hunger limits, your, your fatigue limits, uh, how much you know working out do you need to do, how much laying on the couch, mm-hmm. how much house do you need to watch, yeah. um, all, all of these things. Uh, limits of your relationships with other people, mm-hmm. uh, limits, uh, limits of what you can know and learn and, and that other people are smarter than you and, and, and these things. Yep, there are lots of limits to face. And as you're facing those limits, I think – especially if you're a theologian, you have to pray through them. You have to see this as, as you discovering yourself, discovering the marvel that God has made. And mm-hmm. again, that will help you discern what gifts are truly yours and, and where they lie. I would say that there's an issue that faces a lot of young theologians these days. I realize it, it is difficult for a lot of people, but to be perfectly honest, I've never seen exactly why it's so difficult. But mm-hmm. that's the issue of, you know, being an academic at the expense of being faithful to mm-hmm. this or that tradition. Now, certainly your study should lead you deeper and deeper, and maybe there are conversion experiences where you, you recognize this tradition or this expression of the tradition is not the right one. I, I need to convert to move from one mm-hmm. religion to another or one denomination to another or something like that. I, I get that. That's part of it. But the dichotomy that we put between the academy and the church seems Mm -hmm. to me to be a very false dichotomy. Mm -hmm. Historically, it's false. There's tight relationships, even causal relationships between the church and the academy. Even in the present day, 
I don't, I don't think theologians are out to get each other. Even mm-hmm. academic theologians, I don't think, are out to get each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe to improve upon each other's understandings or readings, maybe, maybe to make our point or show that our argument's a little more refined than someone else's. Um, but if you, if you begin your career or look at your studies either as an attempt to disprove your bishop or to safeguard yourself from your bishop, I think you've missed a large part of the point mm-hmm. that, that this theology is not you versus the world. It's you as one part of salvation history. Yeah. And in that sense, you have to be willing to let, uh, to let God write salvation history in your own life. Mm-hmm. And like I say, for me, the best image of that is maybe the little piece of salvation history God's writing through my life ends up in the common of doctors of the church mm-hmm. or of holy men and women. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that is a part of the church, now, even a leadership part of the church, but a part okay. of it, not against it. Now, would you say theologians aren't out to get, to get each other or at least, or just that they shouldn't be out to get each other? <laughs> well, they definitely shouldn't <laughs> be. Uh, uh, yeah. And I, I don't think really we are out to get each other. Mm-hmm. There may be some competition for jobs. Yeah. That, that much is true. There may be some competition for publication records or, you know, something like that. So far, it's been my experience that we're really not terribly cutthroat. We may be petty, but we're not. Yeah, at ta- yeah, we're not cutthroat. At times, I think that's possible. But you, I mean, you had even noted before when you were at CUA how essential the the community of students was to yeah. your success. That, and I know uh, Terrence Tilly a couple of years ago at a conference, he, he said, you know, theology is a team sport. You know, it's really is something that we do together. Absolutely. Um, even with, you know, arguments and disagreements, those are not meant to be divisive or at least shouldn't be divisive. But So to conclude, we have a, a little five-question questionnaire, uh, perhaps a little more lighter questions than the ones so far. So number one, what is your favorite biblical name? Well, Abimelech comes to mind <laughs> as, a, as a great name. That's true. Um, I have always thought that it would be fun to, to name something Moses, mm-hmm. uh, but I can never get past, like, if I name my dog Moses, won't that piss off a bunch of other people? Like, is that somehow sacrilegious yeah. or is that reverential? Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's leave it at Abimelech and Moses. Fair enough. What is your favorite or least favorite liturgical song? Or, or both, maybe. Sure. Well, I have to be in a mood to sing. And even if I'm in a mood to sing, I'm not singing well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's to say any genre of, of liturgical music will one day not make me happy mm-hmm. and another day make me happy. But what bothers me most about the liturgical music is when we use it to rewrite the prayers of the liturgy. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking specifically of uh, the Psalms. And the way we freely insert whatever other song that we have made up because it's our favorite one or easy to play or is going to work well with this theme that we want Father to preach on. Mm -hmm. And we ignore the words of Scripture. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so what what bothers me about liturgical music is when it misappropriates or Mm -hmm. reappropriates those those parts of the liturgy. Also, entrance and exit songs are marching music. As soon as we have moved to where we need to go, they should stop. <laughs> so you're happy to leave off the last verse? Any, up front? If it takes two verses for all the altar servers and father to get up to the altar, <laughs> we've only sung two verses. 
Literally, I know a lot of other people who get so upset when you don't finish the song. Where you just leave verses They hanging. They can sing it on their own on their way home. <laughs> That's what the car is for. Uh, number three. Of what or whom would you be the patron saint? Well, it's already taken. I'd like to think that I could perhaps be a, a patron saint of carpenters, but okay. it's pretty stiff competition yeah. for that that role right now. I mean, um, notwithstanding the Lord. You know. Yeah, yeah. If you're gonna go <laughs> go big or go home, right? Don't uh, don't shoot for small small things. Uh, I, I would also like to think that I might be a patron saint of those who struggle genuinely. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've had friends who have uh, deep addictions and, and serious you know, diseases, disabilities, and these things. And actually, I see a lot of, of that in myself as well. Maybe they didn't play out in the same way. Mm-hmm. But uh, if, if I were to be patron saint of something, I'd like to think it, it might be either patron saint of carpenters, you know, woodworkers, or patron saint of those who struggle genuinely. Right. Uh, what profession other than theologian uh, would you like to attempt, or might you have really gone with had you know things gone differently? So one thing I've never done uh, is drive an eighteen wheeler with a trailer. I've driven a bus, I've driven a fire truck, uh, other large dump truck, you know, heavy mm-hmm. equipment. But I, if if uh, if I could take a break and just do something for a few days, truck driver would be pretty fun uh, for a little while. I would never have guessed yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, and lastly. You teach a class on salvation at St. Leo. Believing that heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive? Uh, welcome back, my son. Right. Or at least welcome. All right. Yeah. Is this a return trip for you? Or? Well, uh, <laughs> the, the welcome back line comes from uh, uh, my rector in high school, this priest who, mm-hmm. who uh, pretty significant figure for a lot of Little Rock, Arkansas, Father Tribu. Uh, and those are his words at confession. Mm. Uh, Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been two years since my last confession. and You sort of expect to be throttled about the throat mm-hmm. uh, for having been gone for so long. Mm-hmm. And instead, what you would hear is, welcome back, my son. Huh. It's good to have you. Oh. And I expect that, uh, well, I hope that when I die, I'm in God's good graces, but I, I expect there will still be a little cleaning up to do. And mm-hmm. so I think, I think uh, welcome is going to be what uh, <laughs> what I'll hear is the most hopeful words. <laughs> That's a really nice story. Well, hi right, Tommy. Uh, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you're quite welcome. I, I enjoyed doing this. The Daily Theology Podcast is produced bi-weekly by dailytheology.org. Daily Theology is a Catholic blog that pursues faith-seeking understanding in everyday life. You can find us online at dailytheology.org, on Facebook at Daily Theology, or on Twitter at Daily Theo.